There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job enjoyed the extravagant blessings of God, having a large family and a vast wealth. The Bible describes him as the greatest of all people of the East. He was a devoted worshiper of God, and he continually interceded on behalf of his family. And God took delight in him. But there was one who hated him. There was a day when the angels presented themselves before the Lord and Satan was among them. For he had not yet been cast out of the heavenly realm. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down upon it. In other words, from prowling around like a ravening lion. Seeking someone to devour. And what the Lord did next, to my mind, I find it unthinkable. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in all the earth. A man blameless and upright who fears God and turns away from evil. What's he doing It appears as if he is provoking Satan to attack his beloved. Enticing him to turn his malicious and malevolent malevolent energies toward Job. Why would God do such a thing? Satan took the bait and he answered the Lord and he said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you put a hedge, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And thus, the accuser of the brethren laid a charge against Job before the judge of all the earth. Here's what it was. Job serves you for money. He is a mercenary. You have done nothing but purchased his loyalty. You have bribed him for worship. Remove your hand of protection and blessing and Job will show you his true colors. He will curse you to his face. And the Lord took Satan's challenge and he removed his hand of protection and blessing from Job. And he fed Job to the ravening lion. And Satan slaughtered Job's servants. He devoured Job's flocks and he killed Job's children. And when Job heard the news, the Bible says that he arose and he tore tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And in all this, Job did not sin, nor did he charge God with wrong. Satan's accusation was disproved. At his first trial, Job was found not guilty. But Satan was not finished. Another day, another gathering of the angels in heaven, another charge from the accuser. Chapter 2 and verse 4, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Is that not true? You think about what a man will not do to prolong the years of his life. All that a man has, he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And again, the Lord gave Satan opportunity to prove his charge in the heavenly court. And Satan struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Leaving Job, just picture this. Leaving Job to sit in the ash heap of his ruined life, scraping his open sores with a shard of shattered pottery. Misery. It was at this point that Job's wife broke. And she said to Job, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Why would you worship a God who allows this to happen to you? See, evidently there was a limit to her devotion. Satan's accusations against Job's wife were established. The evidence incontrovertible, the verdict guilty. But Job still held firm. He said to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Satan's charge against Job was still not proven. But time passed, didn't it? And the sufferings did not ease. And at the beginning of chapter 3, we read these words. Then Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And so it began. For the next 36 chapters, Job claims his own innocence while questioning God's righteousness. Thus darkening the Lord's counsel with words without knowledge. And Satan's accusation against Job was confirmed. As soon as worship ceased to flow out of his mouth and was replaced by cursing. Satan's charge was proven. Job's guilt established. Job did not worship God from a pure heart, but at least in part for the blessings which God bestowed upon him. And now, now he stood condemned before the accuser of the brethren. What was he to do? We move ahead several centuries in redemptive history to the end of the 6th century B.C. 
It's 20 years after the return of the first exiles from Babylon. It is 70 years after Jerusalem and its temple were utterly destroyed in a devastating act of divine judgment upon the idolatry and the wickedness of Israel. It was a dark and discouraging time in the life of the nation. The captivity in Babylon was over and the exiles had returned, but the city still lay in ruins. The rebuilding of the temple had long since ceased and now it was just nothing more than a small rectangular foundation where Solomon's magnificent structure had once stood. Where was the promised restoration? Where was the promised glory? Where was the promised Messiah, the King of righteousness, who would usher in an everlasting kingdom of peace? And it was into this context that God sent his prophet Zechariah to speak a word of hope to a hopeless people. And in one night, God showed his prophet six consecutive visions. Eight, not six, eight consecutive visions over the course of six chapters. Just one right after another. And it is the fourth night vision that draws our attention in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan at his right hand to accuse him. So you catch the scene. It's the heavenly courtroom. And there are three principal figures. There's the angel of the Lord who is the the pre-incarnate son of God who sits upon the throne of judgment. There's Joshua, the high priest and representative of Israel, who stands trial before him. And there's Satan, standing at his right hand as the prosecuting attorney of the court, laying charge after charge against him. And Zechariah tells us that Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord, clothed in filthy garments. Now that's a massively important point, and I don't want you to miss it. The filthy garments in which Joshua is clothed represent sin. They represent his evil deeds. In other words, Satan's accusations against Joshua are not false. They're not unfounded. They are true and accurate and evident. Joshua is guilty. He is covered with iniquity. He's defiling the presence of the Lord with his sin. He's filthy. It's also important to note that Joshua is the high priest and therefore he represents all of the people of Israel before their covenant Lord. So it's not just Joshua. It's all the people. If Joshua, the high priest, the mediator, if he can't stand in the presence of God, then what hope does anybody else have? If the one who intercedes on behalf of the people doesn't have a voice, what hope is there for the people? If the one who offers sacrifices to atone for sin is himself guilty of sin and cannot appear before the righteous one, what hope does anybody else have of forgiveness? What is Joshua to do? What is Israel to do? What are we to do? Is there no answer to Satan's accusations 
particularly when it is evident that they're true. We are filthy. We are defiled. We are filled with iniquity and sin. The Lord himself answered Satan's accusations from his throne of judgment. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And the angel of the Lord said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And the angel of the Lord then solemnly promised Joshua that he would have access to the throne room of God, for the Lord would remove the iniquity of Israel in a single day. Now I begin this morning with those two Old Testament passages because they illustrate a truth to which Revelation chapter 12 alludes. So beginning in chapter 12 and verse 7, John says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now as we saw last week, this war in heaven was provoked by the first coming of Christ, in particular by his death and his resurrection. When Christ died on the cross and rose again on the third day, He triumphed over sin and over death and over all of the forces of hell, including Satan and his demonic host. Up to that point, as we've seen in Job and as we've seen in Zechariah in the case of Joshua, it seems that Satan had some place in heaven. In fact, it seems that he held some position in the heavenly court, that of prosecuting attorney. The word Satan, in fact, was not originally a proper noun. It was not originally a name. It's a Hebrew word that means adversary. But in time, it came to be used as a title for the devil, for the dragon, for the ancient serpent of Genesis chapter 3. Because Satan is the adversary who accuses men and women before God in the heavenly courtroom. That's what he was doing in Job. That's what he was doing in the case of Joshua in the book of Zechariah. He accused Job before God of worshiping God for material gain. He accused Joshua of entering into the presence of the Lord and defiling his presence with his filthy rags of sin. And prior to the death of Christ, Satan held this position in the heavenly court because his accusations were founded and true. Those he accused, like Job and like Joshua, were indeed guilty of sin and deserving of the penalty of death. But when Christ died for sinners, something changed, something happened. God canceled the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, by nailing it to the cross. 
Satan's charges against the elect of God no longer had any legal merit. Prior to the death of Christ, the charges had merit. They were true. They deserved punishment. The law needed to be upheld. The glory of God needed to be validated. But when Christ died, God took those legal demands of the law on behalf of His people and He nailed them to the cross and the justice of God was satisfied. The righteous demands of the law were fulfilled and Satan's accusations no longer had any merit. By the blood of Christ, Satan's accusations against the brethren became slander. He was... Thus summarily disbarred and cast from the heavenly court. And he is not allowed to try cases there anymore. And so John hears this announcement from the bench. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. No longer can Satan make any accusation against you before God, and that for three reasons. Number one, he no longer has access to the heavenly court. He no longer holds his position as the heavenly prosecutor. He has been thrown down. Number two, his accusations against those for whom Christ died no longer bear legal merit. For in the eyes of the law of God, those who are justified by faith are no longer guilty, but are righteous in His sight. Without guilt, without sin, without condemnation. Which is why Paul glories in the 8th chapter of Romans that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who shall bring a charge against one of God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, who always makes intercession for us. He has no legal right to lay a charge against one of Christ's anymore. And third, we have an advocate before the Father, who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We are no longer like Joshua standing alone in the defendant's box while Satan, the prosecuting attorney, stands at our right hand to accuse us. The judge has come down from his judgment seat and has come to stand at our right hand to defend us and to advocate on our behalf. And Jesus never loses a case when his blood is entered into evidence. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, says verse 12, for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. But, though Satan has been disbarred and cast out of the heavenly courtroom, he has not yet been destroyed. Rather, he has been thrown down to the earth. And so we read at the end of verse 12, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And as the rest of Revelation 12 makes clear, as we saw last week, his great wrath is directed toward the woman and her offspring, that is, the church. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And in his great wrath, Satan continues to do 
what he knows best in an attempt to destroy and devour the people of God. Jesus in John 8.44 called him a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And that is exactly what we see him doing in Revelation. 12.15. We see the dragon, the deceiver of the whole world, the liar. Pouring out of his mouth a, a river of lies to try and sweep away the church with a flood of heresy. Chapter 13 and verse 15, we find that those who will not bow before the beast and worship his image are slain. Satan is a liar and he is a murderer and so in his great wrath he deceives and he kills. But he is still a lawyer at heart. The law is still in his blood. And he still exercises those skills which he honed as the prosecutor of the heavenly court. And though he can no longer argue a case before the throne of God, he still delights to lay charges at the feet of the saints. He still accuses the brethren night and day in the courtroom of their own conscience. Reminding us of the guilt of our sin. Reminding us of the filthiness of our garments. Reminding us of our deservedness of divine judgment. Reminding us of our unworthiness to approach the Holy One. He whispers in our ear, your sin is too great. You have fallen too far. You have gone back Too many times. God will never again accept you. God will never again love you. God will never again embrace you and claim you as his child. You are filthy. You are wretched. You are damned. You should just give up. And his aim is to drive us to despair And ultimately into unbelief such that we then give up hope and we give up the fight against sin and we give up the fight of grace and we give ourselves over to the darkness which he has convinced us we are no longer able to resist. And it's called apostasy. And it is a danger that affects every one of us. That's why we have verse 11. Christ has overcome. And so must we. In him. And verse 11 tells us how. They. The brethren from verse 10 that he's accusing. They overcame him. They overcame his accusations. They overcame his whispers. They overcame his temptations and his driving them to despair. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And because they did not love their lives even when faced with death. In this glorious verse, which I think, I think is the most important verse in all of Revelation. John gives us insight into how the brethren overcome the accusations and the temptations of Satan. And upon examination, I think there's two weapons that he gives us. Two answers to Satan's accusations. The first, John says, we overcome Satan with a sufficient atonement. 
They overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb answers the accusations of Satan with regard to our guilt. But what does it mean to overcome Satan, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb? There's three places in Revelation where John says that the blood of the Lamb has an effect upon the saints. It, it does something on our behalf. Revelation 1.5 Jesus Christ is identified as Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. Okay, So, if I want to know what it means to overcome by the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 1.5 gives me one clue. It tells me that the blood of Christ has freed us from what? Well, the word translated freed refers to being loosed from bondage, released from chains. And I think the bondage which John has in mind is bondage to sin in terms of its penalty under the law. A, a criminal who breaks the law is, by virtue of his crime, a slave to the law's penalty. We, by virtue of our transgression of God's commandments, we were slaves to the law's penalty. The law said the soul that sins shall die. We sinned, therefore we are deserving of death. We are slaves to the law of death. Until the blood of Christ came and answered the law and set us free. Because by his blood, Christ paid our penalty and satisfied the righteous demands of the law. The blood of Christ silences Satan by silencing the law which Satan uses to accuse the brethren. So the blood of the Lamb sets us free from sin's penalty. Revelation 5.9, the 24 elders sing a new song to the Lamb saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. By your blood you ransomed people for God. You redeemed, you purchased a vast, innumerable, multi-ethnic multitude of sinners. Redeemed, purchased from what? From whom? Well, if you remember back to our study of Revelation 5, the answer is that the blood of Christ purchased sinners for God from God. Purchased us from God's wrath, from the righteous demands of His law. The love of God sent the Son of God to redeem the people of God from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, Paul says, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So the blood of the Lamb has redeemed us from sin's alienation. You were separated from God and there was this hindrance, this barrier between you and your Creator. And that barrier was called sin. And Christ came and by His blood He removed that barrier and reconciled you to the Father. Revelation 
The same vast innumerable multitude of saints who are gathered before the throne are worshiping God and the Lamb and they are identified by John as those who are coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So like Joshua the high priest, everyone in this multitude that no man can count from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that are gathered around the throne and are shouting out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every one of them was at one time defiled and filthy in the sight of God. Just like Joshua. And just like you. And just like me. Every one of them. And every one of them have plunged their robes their selves, their souls into the blood of Christ shed at the cross and they have emerged spotless and blameless and pure and undefiled. They've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the blood of the Lamb has cleansed us from sin's defilement. And you take all three of those notions and you, and you condense them into Revelation twelve eleven, and that's what it means to overcome by the blood of the Lamb. John has in mind both the objective reality of what happened at the cross between Christ and God on our behalf, and he has in mind the subjective experience of what happens inside my own heart and my own conscience. Objectively, when Christ died 2,000 years ago on the cross outside Jerusalem, When the blood of the Lamb was shed in atonement upon the cross, the brethren, the saints, the elect of God whose names have been written in the book of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, they, we, were freed from sin's penalty and are no longer condemned before God. We were redeemed from sin's alienation and are no longer separated from God. And we were cleansed from sin's defilement and are no longer unclean in the sight of God. And those objective realities are true whether you feel it or not. Nothing that you do affects that objective reality of what happened on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That objective reality was the same 2,000 years ago and last night. But that objective reality must be appropriated by our subjective experience. I no longer need a clean record before God. I need a clean conscience before God. So how do I... How do I get that? How do I, how do I recognize that what happened way back there on the other side of the world between Christ and God on the cross when he bore my sins in his body, how do I take that and apply it to my sin from last night? When I stand here in the presence of God and we're singing these songs and I feel so filthy before him, how do I, how do I take that reality and apply it to my heart so that I can know that I'm clean and feel clean and feel welcomed into God's presence. Do you not wonder that? Here is the all-important point to the question, how do you answer Satan's accusations? You're filthy. You're defiled. You're unclean. 
God will never have you. You should just give up. Go home. Plunge headlong into the sin that you can't even resist anyhow. Give up. You're damned. What do you say? Here is the all-important point of this morning. You take nothing else away from this. You take this. You cannot, you must not refute his charges. You do not attempt to argue your own case. For on the point of your sin as to whether you committed it or not, his accusations are almost always true. He doesn't have to falsely accuse you. There's enough in your life for him to rightly accuse you. Satan didn't falsely accuse Job of worshiping God for gain. It's true, Job held out admirably long, far longer than most of us would have. Persevering through the death of his children and loss of all of his possessions. But when the cumulative effect of his grief and his poverty and his disease combined with the silence from heaven, Job cursed the day of his birth and darkened God's counsel with words without knowledge. Satan did not falsely accuse Joshua of defilement. His garments and his heart were filthy with sin. He was, in fact, unworthy to stand before the Holy One of Israel. And Satan does not falsely accuse you. The truth of the matter is, he doesn't know half of the depravity of which your heart and mind are capable of. You cannot deny nor can you disprove the charges he makes and it is futile to try. You will just be driven further and further inward and there is no hope in you. Therefore, you dare not plead your own merits, your own righteousness, because you don't have any. You have none. You have no ground in yourself with which to answer Satan's accusations and plead your innocence. You must plead the blood of the Lamb. The answer to Satan's accusations is not to deny your sinfulness but to plead the blood of Christ which has freed you from sin's penalty, has redeemed you for God, and has washed you from sin's defilement. If you try to answer Satan point for point on your sin, you will lose. More than that, you will be plunged into the depths of despair and eventually will drown in hopeless unbelief. You must answer Satan's accusations with the blood of the Lamb, and there rest your case. Only the blood of Christ, the Lamb, will silence Satan's accusations and quiet the guilty conscience and bring peace to the despairing soul. Listen, it is not that you have not sinned. It is rather that Christ's blood is sufficient for every sin, is sufficient to answer every charge, and has paid every penalty in full. No further charges can be brought against those for whom Christ has died. 
You don't argue your innocence. You argue Christ's sufficient atonement. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Paul asks. It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died. No charges, no condemnation for the elect of God who are justified by faith in the blood of the Lamb. So you don't answer Satan with your merit, your righteousness, your innocence, your denials of guilt. You answer Satan's accusations with objective gospel truth, election, justification, imputation. I, by the authority of the Word of God, I am Chosen. I am beloved. I am purchased. I am redeemed. I am clothed in the spotless righteousness of Christ. And every sin that I've ever committed has been plunged and made clean in the sight of my God. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Case closed. That's the answer. But once you have learned the secret of silencing Satan's accusations, then he will try to silence you. Because while you're still wallowing in despair over your sin and writhing underneath the load of guilt while Satan beats you down with his accusations, you're of no use to anyone. You're turned radically inward and that's exactly the way that he wants you. You pose no threat to his kingdom. But when you have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and your gaze is lifted out from within you and it's lifted Upward to see him there who shed his blood that you might be clean and who answers Satan's accusations with his own righteousness. And you realize that the same truths that have set you free and flooded your soul with peace can set other people free and and flood their souls with peace. Then you become an imminent threat to Satan's domain. And he will bring the full force of his malice to bear upon you to silence you from witnessing to his grace in Christ. He will slander you and he will marginalize you. Revelation chapter 2. This is what was happening in the midst of the saints at Smyrna. Jesus said, I know your tribulations and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but they are of a synagogue of Satan. He'll cause you to be slandered and you will lose what positions of prominence you had. He will imprison you and impoverish you. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you'll have tribulation for 10 days. He will even kill you. Be faithful unto death Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Anything to keep you from bearing testimony to the gospel that sets the captives free. How will you overcome him? 
They overcame him by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So in order to overcome Satan such that you keep bearing testimony even in the midst of persecution and slander and imprisonment and threats of death, you overcome Satan with a superior affection. You love Jesus more than you love life. Your affection for Christ must be greater than your affection for a good reputation. Your affection for Christ must be greater than your affection for power and prestige and prominence in this world. Your affection for Christ must be greater than your affection for freedom. Your affection for Christ must be greater than your affection for life in this world such that you walk through life really believing and not just saying that to live is Christ and to die is gain. This superior affection is not something that you can strive to attain. You cannot, you cannot and don't try to grit your teeth and just love Jesus more. It's not the way it works. You don't love Jesus more by trying to love Him more. Rather, your love for Jesus grows deeper the deeper you press into His love for you. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. We love because He first loved us. So the deeper that you press into the gospel, the deeper your love for Christ will grow. And the deeper your love for Christ grows, the more you will speak his testimony at the cost of your life. And the more that you speak his testimony at the cost of your life and everything in this world, the more Satan's kingdom crumbles to the ground. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and because they did not love their lives even when faced with death. So this morning, I invite you, every one of you, whether you've been a believer when you came in here or by God's mercy and grace you were made a believer in the last 45 minutes, I invite you into Revelation 12.11. I invite you to live in Revelation 12.11. I invite you to come out of the hazy mists of doubtful despair, to come out of the dungeon of doubting castle, as it were, out of a life of agonized anxiety and trembling timidity where you you wonder and wonder and wonder if God really loves you. You wonder if you're really forgiven. You wonder if you're really saved. I invite you out of that hazy mist of doubt doubt and I invite you to stand upon the promise of God and to accept and embrace a blood-bought boldness that he desires his people to have as they walk through this life. Revelation 12, 11 is a picture of Christians who are essentially no different than you. These aren't super Christians in Revelation 12, 11. They weren't sinless they're not perfect like Job. Their faith is flawed. Their motives are mixed. They're affected by circumstances. Like Joshua, their garments are filthy, stained with sin. But they took their stand in Revelation 
They took their stand on the blood of the Lamb. They did not strive with Satan on the strength of their own merit or their own righteousness or their own devotion. They stood before the accuser of the brethren and they pled only the blood of the Lamb because only the blood of the Lamb can silence the accuser's voice. And then they went forth into Babylon on the strength of a blood-bought boldness, and they spoke the word of their testimony until they were slain. And they entered into glory and received from the Lord the crown of life, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to all those on that day. So this morning, I invite you, on the authority of Christ, to, to come into Revelation twelve eleven. Overcome Satan with a blood-bought boldness. Don't languish any longer beneath the, the weight of canceled sin. There's no hope in you. So quit looking in you. Look up. Before the throne of God above, I and you have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue, none, can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Is he doing that to any of you today? Reminding of you how wretched you are, how guilty you are. When he tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. I don't look inward, I don't argue with him. Upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen land, my, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself. I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Let's bow our heads. Do not leave here until you can say that. This promise is for you and for your children and for all whom the Lord our God will call to himself. It is the promise of free and everlasting forgiveness and cleansing and reconciliation and boldness and glory and joy to everyone who will take their stand on the blood of the Lamb. So this morning I invite you Sinner, struggling saint, doubting disciple, I invite you to take your garments and to plunge them in the blood of Christ by faith. Take your sin and take it to Christ. Take your stand. On the atoning blood of Jesus. Argue with Satan no longer. 
right now you say, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. You honor Christ and his sacrifice when you believe that he and it is sufficient for every sin. So lay it at his feet. And you accept the proclamation from the bench which says, not guilty. For even you, 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 receive his forgiveness free and full through the blood of Christ.